thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. I have you loud and clear. <laughs> Hello. 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 Welcome. Welcome. <laughs> Science. And that is to say physics, medicine, nature, or space, time, the brain, life, the universe. Hello. This week we've left the studio and headed to Scotland. This show was recorded in front of a live audience at the Edinburgh Science Festival and for the next hour, Chris Smith and Adam Murphy will be taking you through the wonderfully weird world of science with help from some guests. I'm Izzy Clark, and this is The Naked Scientists. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. So a very warm welcome. Here we are at the Edinburgh Science Festival. Let's hear it for Edinburgh. Now, being a medical person, this morning I decided to go for a bit of a walk in this wonderful weather we're having called fog. And I went to the world-famous Edinburgh Royal Infirmary. It's got a maternity unit. So I decided I walked along this corridor and they've got this picture on the wall of this newborn baby. And this sign underneath it says, the first five minutes of... This infant's life are the most dangerous, but you're in safe hands. And then underneath, someone had written, the last five minutes is pretty terrifying as well. (laughs) You're in safe hands here, though, I'm very pleased to say. And joining me here on The Naked Scientist this week is Adam Murphy. Please say hello to Adam. Hello, everyone. So with this show, what we're planning to do is bring you the very best and the very weirdest things we've found about scientists, but we can't do that alone. That would be a boring show, listening to the two of us nattering here for an hour. So we brought along some of our friends to help. The first one is Chris Johnson, Head of Computer Science at Glasgow University. Chris, you're a computer scientist, but you've researched for space flights to Mars. How does that work? Yeah, well, I used to work on space failures, really. So I was looking at the kind of disaster scenarios that you see, for example, in the film of The Margin, but uh, this was for real. One of the things that we looked at was what happens if things go wrong? What happens if, for example, somebody's on the planet's surface and they literally can't get back into orbit and then head back to Earth again? So we looked at some of the early records for the lunar missions and found some really weird stuff in there. So one of them was that Conrad Kraft, the original kind of architect of a lot of the lunar landings, played around with edible spacecraft. So you end up on the surface of the moon and you can't get off, so you start eating your home. Uh, and the thing was they tested it with the astronauts and the astronauts at the end of about i don't know two or three years of testing said that they would rather die than eat this stuff that's really surprising because i quite like the flavor of rocket (laughs) (laughs) sitting next to chris is beth biller she's an astrophysicist at the university of edinburgh so what took you down the path of, of stargazing 
So for me, the aha moment of, oh, this is what I really want to do, came when I was in high school when the first exoplanets were discovered. So these are planets orbiting stars other than our sun, and we now know of over 3,000 of them. But the first few we discovered were actually kind of like Jupiter, but way closer to their stars, and burning up these hot Jupiter planets, and just made such a huge impression on me that that was kind of the moment I said, yep, this is what I want to do. Because there are thousands of them that we now know about, aren't there? Thousands, yeah, and the number is growing by the day. What I think is particularly exciting, and I think we'll talk about this a bit more later in the program, is the possibility of really understanding these planets as worlds, um, not just having them as numbers on a chart or stamp collecting, but understanding their atmospheres, understanding their surfaces, and maybe eventually understanding whether they can have life on them as well. So our... Solar systems with planets the norm or the exception now? Which, which do we think? I would say the norm. Now, whether those solar systems are like our own at all, that's a really good question. But certainly missions like the Kepler mission, which was a space telescope that looked at one patch of the sky for three whole years and detected tons and tons of planets, uh, found that almost every star has at least one planet. So we are very not alone, at least in terms of rocks in space. In terms of rocks in space. In terms of habitable rocks, that's another question. That's a bigger question. Okay. So sitting next to Beth, we have Luke McNally from the School of Biological Sciences from the University of Edinburgh. And you work on the microbiome. So what is the microbiome exactly? Uh, So the microbiome are the bacteria and other microorganisms that live on and in us all the time. Uh, What I find really fascinating about them is I always thought before bacteria were just these cells that grew, divided, kind of sat there inertly, but they interact in really complex communities. They have their own languages. They can speak to each other with chemical signals. They engage in warfare. They have ingenious weapons they've developed to kill each other, and they cooperate together to build structures that dwarf our cities in relative scale. People say we're almost passengers in our own bodies because we're outnumbered by our microbial passengers? Well, that depends on how long it is since you've had a poo. So there's approximately... Are you asking me now? (laughs) Well, if you want to volunteer the answer. So the latest calculations say there's approximately equal numbers of bacterial and human cells in our bodies. And so it basically depends on how long it is since we last went to the bathroom, whether that balance is more human or bacteria. When I did the sound check earlier and I thought the sound wasn't working, it was nearly there and then, I can tell you. (laughs) Last but not least, Sophie Goggins is at National Museums Scotland. So what exactly do you curate then, Sophie? So that's a very good question. So I am responsible for all of the medical and veterinary history of the nation of Scotland. So uh, my job is to preserve both things that happened in the past, but my focus actually, as might be told my title, is on contemporary medicine and science. And your most popular exhibit you've got? Our most popular exhibit is, of course, Dolly the Sheep. Really? She is. She is our most popular object. How many visitors does she attract? So we get over three million visitors a year, and Dolly is still by far our most popular object. Everyone who comes into the museum, it seems, has to take a selfie with Dolly and her slowly rotating form. (laughs) Well, amazingly, we're also going to be joined a bit later on in this programme by Sir Ian Wilmot, who was one of the brains behind the creation of Dolly. I'll be talking to him later in the show. Welcome to our panel and welcome to all of you. Now, first up, let's talk to Chris Johnson, who is from the University of Glasgow. He's a computer whiz kid, I suppose you could say, isn't it? So we're going to ask you, first of all, what, in your view, your best of invention in your field is. So the National Cybersecurity Centre, if you like it, is the public-facing part of GCHQ that's 
responsible for promoting the cybersecurity of the country as a whole. And the more things that we rely on in our daily lives for computational infrastructure, the more we're going to have to look to people like them to protect us against the growing range of threats. When I worked with NASA, we did things like fault injection, so deliberately putting bugs into our own code. Then we would give it to testers, and if they came back and they said, we found eight bugs and you'd already put in ten, keep testing, keep testing. And then one time they edited the code, made the changes, tried to track down bugs, and uh, they came back and after about six months still only found nine bugs. And we're like, okay, we'll show you where it is. And then we couldn't find the bug that we deliberately put in ourselves. That's a bad day. <laughs> but the reason for telling that story is that the thing that I wanted to talk about is a National Cyber Security Centre, because there's this kind of connection between the space safety stuff I did first and the cyber security stuff, right? So what, what the connection is this. So Dijkstra said testing proves the presence of bugs, not the absence, right? So when you run an antiviral checker on your computer, does that mean your computer's clean? Or does it mean maybe that you have a very poor antiviral checker? The other day, Chris, I was really shocked when we had on our programme someone who showed me a technique for hacking a computer where it's literally a USB cable. And the point they were making is that we think about online threats and sort of downloading malware and so on, but we don't think about the cables we plug into our computer. And cyber criminals are now engineering cables with little bits of electronics in the cable. So when you plug it into your computer, it actually installs malware on your computer from the cable. And you don't know about it, but it's then hijacked your machine. Yeah, we have those sorts of systems in the lab that we run in Glasgow. And the reason that we have them is that we're looking at ways of crossing what's called the air gap. So a lot of the high value or safety related systems today aren't connected to the internet. So to get malware into them, you have to look at these other techniques. Prove, for example, taking devices in through the supply chain and, and things like that. And I think what we really need to understand is that this isn't just uh, teenagers uh, or criminals. It's government agencies now professionally developing attack methods that's why things like the national cyber security center is so important just very briefly chris what then are your top tips for staying safe have a look at the uh, national cyber security center website really easily to find on it there are five tips i won't go into all of them in detail but things like updating the software of your operating system even though it says it might take 10 minutes to do is actually worth doing Pretty much the only systems that were compromised by WannaCry were those that hadn't been updated. So make sure you update your software. So run the updates. Thanks, Chris. Is anyone else sufficiently terrified? Anyone else have the urge to smash all their computers with rocks now, just in case? We'll move from the best to Beth, the most bizarre. What is one of the most bizarre things an astronomer's done when they put their eye to the telescope? So this is a bit of a historical one and one that they didn't actually see, which is canals on Mars. So for a period of time in the late 19th century and early 20th century, there was this idea that there were these canals on Mars and that they were the result of a civilization trying to save themselves from their dying, drying planet, transporting water from the polar caps down to the mid-latitudes. And this was completely false. So I think it's 1879, 
Giovanni Schiaparelli was looking through a fairly small telescope, looking at Mars, and started drawing all these lines. And after that, a number of other astronomers started claiming that they saw these lines, notably Percival Lowell, of, who started Lowell Observatory in Arizona in the United States. And there were all these different maps of all these very complicated canal systems. Now, one thing that might have been an indicator that this was maybe not a real feature on Mars is that everyone drew a rather different set of canals. These maps didn't agree with each other at all. Uh, so it's an optical illusion, or rather, I think it's it's your brain filling in details where they're not. So in this case, these are people who are looking through fairly small telescopes, not photographing things. And the reason they weren't photographing things is because the atmosphere is really turbulent. So as you're looking through a telescope, sometimes you're going to be looking through slightly more turbulent parts of the atmosphere. Sometimes you're going to get a less turbulent cell. And when you get that lucky less turbulent cell, then you can see your surface features on your planet uh, much more clearly clearly. And essentially, these people were waiting for those moments, saying, oh, look at all these lines we see, draw them really quickly. And it really is just your brain filling in details. Uh, so with better telescopes, all of these features went away. I know it's probably quite serious, but I'm picturing Martian gondola drivers going oh, down these canals. And absolutely, there was so much science fiction that was written up until like the mid-20th century with exactly these, these ideas. I mean, Percival Lowell went on and started drawing similar line shapes on Venus as well. So who's been to the eye doctor and had them shine a light in your eye and then you see all the lovely veins on your retina? Most people are nodding. Venus is really bright, right? Even through a small telescope, Venus is really bright. And if you stop down your aperture, you're putting a lot of light through your eye at once. So it's thought that maybe some of the spoke patterns that Percival Lowell saw on Venus were him drawing the structure of his own retina. <laughs> Uh, but it's a cautionary tale because with astronomy, you have to be careful to test what you see and to make sure it's actually there. Uh, so you're not creating wishful thinking structures. So we don't think there are canals now. We don't Mars. think there's okay. canals. Um, there's not a face or pyramids either on Mars. You'll be telling me the moon's not made of cheese next. <laughs> I have some disappointing news for you. <laughs> now, we've asked our guests to, to bring along some show and tell things as well. Now, Luke, what have you got in that ominous looking jar under your seat? It's in a red plastic bag, this. What? An, uh, oh, my goodness. So... This is a medieval antibiotic. So it's a milky fluid in a... I presume the jam jar's not medieval. No, no, that's modern. I think possibly a Sainsbury's taste the difference. Raspberry <laughs> conserve, I think. Um, but Are you going to take, take the lid off? I will, if you, if you want a whiff of this. I'll tell the story first of, of what's in it. So we all know antimicrobial resistance, bacteria evolving resistance to the drugs we use to kill them is a big problem. And so we're looking all the time for new ways to discover new antibiotics. We need new weapons as bacteria find ways to overcome them. And um, a group of British scientists uh, led by Freya Harrison decided to look in the history books. And so this is from an Anglo-Saxon medieval medical text called Bald's Leech Book. And uh, it's an eye salve. So it was used to treat eye styes, which are infections of the follicle of your eyelash. And so the recipe for this is to mix equal parts, either onion or leek. They're not sure from the translation of the uh, medieval text which it was. Garlic, wine, and ox gall, which is the bile from an ox. And to leave it for nine days to brew in a brass vessel. 
and then afterwards strain it. And then you have this eye salve, which is meant to be applied with a feather to the eye to cure your sty. Have you tried um, it? I haven't tried it, no. So unfortunately, this is only half strength. And this is what's really interesting about this. So I couldn't get hold of any ox bile. So it's only about half strength. So we always think that, you know, there's all these ancient approaches to medicine. And often we think of them as, as very non-sophisticated. We know garlic is antimicrobial. But in this recipe, they actually showed that it's the combination of the ingredients. Any of the ingredients on their own doesn't give you the full effect. It's really this unique combination that does it. So if you put that on a Petri dish with some Staph aureus that causes sort of eye and sty infections and things, will it kill it? Uh, yes, it will. So it kills MRSA really, really well, which most people have probably heard of, a hospital superbug. They did mouse infections, and it's able to kill the MRSA in those as well. At the moment, there's lots of people trying to figure out exactly how it works, because, yeah, it could help guide our discovery of new antibiotics. So just a general question, if, if you actually put that on your eye, mm-hmm. would I have an eye left afterwards? So cure my, cure my MRSA infection, but it would also render me blind, possibly, or would it be okay? Possibly. The smell might give you the answer. Let's have a go. go on. Oh, my goodness. Actually, hang on, it's growing on me. <laughs> That's okay, actually. It's not too bad. Quite, garlic is the, is the dominant smell. Yeah. Give, give this a whiff, Beth. Do you like this? <laughs> I, I will concur, garlic is the very top of that smell. There's a lot of garlic in there. Have you got any of that in your museum then, Sophie? <laughs> Possibly in the brasserie. Not yeah, in you, could, <laughs> you could have after this yeah. show. You can, we might donate it. I mean, how much of a problem is superbug infections now? Because we, we are increasingly being told, our own chief medical officer said that the threat from bacterial infections we can't treat is rivaling terrorism in terms of the threat to humanity. Is that hyperbole or or actually is that true? I don't think that is hyperbole. There's arguments over the estimates. One prominent report said by 2050 this would be causing on the orders of millions of deaths and costing millions and millions of pounds. And we probably are looking at something on that scale if we don't act to stop the problem now. But there's some happy stories as well where things have continued to work. Penicillin's been used to treat syphilis since the 1940s, and that still works to this day. There's never been any resistance to it. Uh, so there's causes for hope as well. Just, just as well it still works, isn't it, as well? Although I can't speak personally in this case. <laughs> but um, I've got a question here from Steph who says, what do you think we're going to be eating in the future and how well prepared are we in terms of our microbiomes for this? Because one of the other things that's your interest is the microbiome. Mm-hmm. Literally, we are what we eat, isn't it? What we put into our mouths affects the spectrum of bacteria that live on us and in us. How will foods of the future be considered in the light of what goes on in our intestines? Oh, that's a very interesting question. I think in terms of our microbiome being able to deal with it, there is a slight worry here. So there's a new initiative, the Microbiome Conservancy, which is going to sample um, microbiomes from hunter-gatherer tribes and things like this to make sure we have samples of all these microbes uh, that could potentially be lost because of our diets changing. But generally, it is a very flexible organ, in essence, in our body, and will pretty much adapt to most diets. That doesn't necessarily mean it'll be healthy. A lot of the time, if you eat certain diets, it can increase the amount of bacteria that can be harmful in the microbiome. But I would expect it to be flexible enough to deal with most of what we throw at it. Luke, thanks very much. Sophie, you must see, as a curator, you must see a rake of really cool things. So cycling back to best, what's your 
hat in the ring for best thing? Yeah, so uh, from my point of view, I definitely think the best in medical history in Scotland is the introduction of anesthesia into surgery. So if we cast our minds back to before having anesthetic during surgery, your options were pretty limited. So you could either be very drunk before surgery, you could have a whack on the head and hope you go unconscious, or that you pass out from shock, or just nothing at all. So there's a very famous case in 1811 of Fanny Burney, who had a double mastectomy without any drugs whatsoever, and according to the surgeon, did not so much as murmur, which I find unlikely. (laughs) So what do we use first? What was the first kind of anesthetic? Actually, one of the first ones that was used usefully was opium, but then the discovery of nitrous oxide or laughing gas... When the person who discovered laughing gas went to go showcase it in a medical arena, they actually mucked up the way that it was administered and their patient cried out in pain. So despite being the one that we still use today, it was the one that was rejected at the time. They then moved pretty quickly on to ether, which is decent in terms of anesthetic, but is pretty smelly and also very, very flammable. Two things that are a little bit of a problem during surgery. Also, it caused your patient to excessively vomit, which didn't necessarily help with... (laughs) (laughs) the kind of rate of recovery for patients. But then, of course, at the time, what was more important for surgery was speed. So you needed to be fast to be able to get your surgeries done in time. So the one who's most famous is Dr. Robert Liston, who could get off a leg in two and a half minutes. Although after the introduction of chloroform, uh, he had it down to 25 seconds. Did I read somewhere once he once did an operation with a 300% mortality rate? He did indeed. Uh, so despite being... Very... So, I mean, you kill someone three times. No, he, uh, he nicked a patient's artery and then while trying to fix it, went through the hand of the assistant who was helping him with the surgery and then while spinning around actually nicked a spectator <laughs> in the crowd. What was the arm with? The chainsaw? <laughs> I will also say he is quite famous for, uh, while taking off someone's leg at speed, while trying to time himself to do the fastest amputation, he did also accidentally take off someone's testicle. It sounds like the kind of surgeon you want, isn't it? Brilliant. Thank you very much. So uh, I am really glad we have anaesthetic now. <laughs> yes. We are very lucky that in 1847, James Young Simpson hosted a very famous dinner party in that instead of after-dinner drinks, you had after-dinner drugs. So he had his people who came to his dinners test out different types of potential anesthetic liquids or properties. And so he tested out chloroform on his patients after dinner. And everyone, of course, lost consciousness. And he used it, thankfully, again, tested it and used it on patients later that week and uh, went on to be used by people like Queen Victoria, who made it very popular. And then I think everyone in the audience can choose, what would you rather, to get drunk, (laughs) a bonk on the head, or just a good cry? (laughs) Thank you, Sophie. Well, now we're going to continue with the bizarre. And we're back with you, Chris. What have you come across that you think is the most bizarre kind of technology in your field? As a kind of first step to a mobile phone, I mean, probably the most important thing about modern mobile phones is that they're cellular. So every 20 miles, typically today, you have at least one base station and your mobile phone is transmitting from your pocket or wherever to that base station. But obviously it took a long time for those base stations and that network to be fully built. So then companies like this company, Rabbit, in the UK, had the idea that they would, they would enable you to, to make telephone calls but only in a very small number of locations where they'd done a deal with the shop owners to put in a very small base station. So it would be like 
you know, having the base station for your phone in your house, but then having another one in local shops. And, and these weren't like the current phone masts that we have, because the current ones do 20 miles approximately radius. These ones were 100 meters, right? So I work in the University of Glasgow, and our local base station for this phone network was in the Iceland frozen food shop. So today, when you're on the train or whatever, people are, I'm on the train, I'm on the train. The only conversation that you could have had with the first generation mobile phone would be frozen peas. I'm moving on to the chicken section. <laughs> so, Chris, did that lead to a lot of cold calling then? Ah. <laughs> but this, to me, the important point is this is like so much of technology that it becomes so much ingrained within your life that even having a conversation about a technology like that is, is a weird place that people sort of think you're making this up, aren't you? But believe me, you know, there were hundreds of people, thousands of people in the UK carrying around a phone about the size of a small vehicle to the local Iceland shop so they could make a phone call. Now, moving on to Beth's turn for show and tell, you've got something that is out of this world. <laughs> Literally so. I have a few meteorites. I think we can actually pass these through the audience. But I'll start with this one. So this is a chunk of iron from space. It is surprisingly heavy. Actually, it's maybe not unsurprisingly heavy. Um, it's part of a larger meteorite that fell in Argentina. There's chunks of this still in Argentina, like tons of it left. And this is the bit that the Royal Observatory owns. And it's just a kind of impressive thing to hold. And I hope you'll enjoy this without throwing it. But you might look at this and say, well, how do you know it's extraterrestrial, right? So this was found in the desert, and it probably contrasted quite a lot with the environment it was in. It's dark. The desert is probably more tanny, grayish. But that's a good question. So I'll move on to this other little bit of meteorite. I guess I can start passing this around. This is a slice through another iron meteorite, iron-nickel meteorite. And what's cool about it is it shows something called Widmanstaten patterns. So when you look at this, you'll see essentially little crystalline patterns, these little streaky patterns. And this is a sign of its origin as an extraterrestrial object. Uh, because the only way you can form this kind of crystalline pattern is if you let this cool extremely slowly. It took millions of years for the asteroid that eventually broke up and formed this meteorite to start from a very hot state and to cool down. And that's why you can get these very complicated crystal patterns. So it can only cool about one degree every million year uh, so for you to get this kind of pattern. So they're just kind of, they're also very, very pretty. Uh, so fun to look at. This one does need to stay in its case though. And um, how many of these things crash into the planet every year? Lots, but in most places you can't find them, right? So if one of these fell in Scotland and fell on the grass, you would never find it, right? It would blend in. It just looks like another rock. I don't have an exact number, but the way people generally search for these, they'll go places like Antarctica, right? So you have a nice white expanse of snow, and if you have dark meteoritic material, it stands out quite well. That's awesome. Thank you. And I see that uh, there is now going around the audience a fist-sized lump of iron. <laughs> Most people are discovering how heavy it really is. The Naked Scientists podcast is produced in association with Spitfire. Cost-effective voice, internet and IP engineering services for UK businesses. Find out how Spitfire can empower your company at spitfire.co.uk. 
This week, Chris Smith and Adam Murphy are bringing you a special programme recorded in front of a live audience at the Edinburgh Science Festival. They're joined by a panel of scientists to tackle the best and the bizarre developments in cybersecurity and technology, space, medicine, as well as the microbiome and antibiotic resistance. Those experts are Chris Johnson, Head of Computer Science at Glasgow University, Beth Biller from the University of Edinburgh's Institute of Astronomy, Microbiologist Luke McNally from the School of Biological Sciences at Edinburgh, and Sophie Goggins, Curator of Biomedical Science at National Museums Scotland. Now, sometimes a bizarre idea quickly becomes the best idea, and one experiment in particular rocked the world of genetics, as Chris Smith explores. On the 22nd of February 1997, in a world first, researchers at the Roslyn Institute, not far from here where we're sitting in Edinburgh, announced that they had taken the DNA from the skin cells of an adult sheep and they had inserted it into an egg cell, also from a sheep, from which they had removed its own DNA first. They put that egg cell back into the uterus of a surrogate or parent sheep, and subsequently a lamb called Dolly was born. And Ian Wilmot, who's sitting next to me, was the person who led the team that made that possible. Ian, it's a huge privilege to to have you here. Thank you for joining us. It's a... It's a point which is very, very important to make. You need a crew of something like 12 or 15 people to do this sort of experiment. So to say I did it would be seriously misleading. Why did you start with sheep, though? Rosalind Institute has always been concerned with farm animals. And if you were thinking of using cloning in a farm animal species, either to improve their performance or to increase numbers the species with the greatest commercial interest would be the cow. But cattle are extremely expensive to buy, to maintain, and they have a very long gestation. So that if you're doing an experiment where you transfer embryos, as you said, into a foster mother, you've got to wait 10 months or whatever it is before you know the answer to the experiment. By comparison, sheep are much easier to look after. They're a lot smaller, for one thing. They're cheaper, and their gestation is less than half that of cattle. So it was Really thinking that sheep are small, cheap cows was the reason why, why, we, why we chose it. How did Dolly go down? Were you sort of celebrated and did you get a good reception to what you announced you'd done or did you face quite a bit of controversy? We got an enormous amount of publicity, of course, and a lot of scepticism. Some people doubted whether Dolly was really a, a clone. If you explain to people the reason why you're doing this sort of thing, the majority would become supportive but a small proportion would be hostile to experiments with animals. And some people expressed concern that perhaps there would be accelerated ageing and that kind of thing on the part of Dolly. Was, was that borne out by experimentation? It's actually very difficult to do the experiments in, in sheep. It's much easier to do them in, in mice, where they, you really do have a shorter generation interval and lifespan. I don't think that there is any evidence of this, but it's quite a difficult and expensive experiment to do. You know, if you have to produce another generation and wait, another generation and wait to see if you're changing uh, lifespan or not. Because there's a recent paper in one of the Nature Journals where they actually got the skeleton of Dolly and CT scanned because one of the criticisms had been that there was premature arthritis. 
And did they not find from these studies that actually there was no evidence really that there was an accelerated rate of arthritis? She didn't really show any signs of that compared with, say, a, a sheep born the normal way. I think that's right. Accelerated ageing was just a, a very slick journalistic expression to indicate that things were not quite right. But I don't think there's ever been really good, clear data about the ageing of cloned animals. What would you like to see the long-term outcome be? If, if you could now wave a magic wand and we'd be in a certain position or know a certain thing, what is the, the final big question that you would like to see answered now? The general understanding before Dolly was that once a cell had formed a particular type, it couldn't change or be changed artificially by, by us. What Dolly showed was that it is possible to change cells. And we had mammary cells, which became equivalent to embryo cells, and we, we got viable, normal offspring. And this, this has created important new opportunities in medicine. What it means is that if we have somebody who, let's say, has motor neuron disease, which reflects damage to nerves that run down the, the spine, if we take skin cells from them, we can treat them so that they become equivalent to embryo stem cells, the cells which have the ability to form any different tissue, and then change them into the cells which are damaged in the disease. And for the first time, we have cells which are equivalent to those in early stages of motor neuron disease. If you've got a disease of the, the central nervous system, you can't have samples from a patient like that until they've passed away. And by then, there may be many secondary effects of the, the disease. Now, in, in this new situation, you can use them to test drugs which may be effective in slowing down or even preventing motor neuron disease. I personally have Parkinson's disease, so there is a chance of the same thing happening for that disease. And I think that unexpectedly, the Dolly experiment has revolutionized the approach to these inherited diseases. I really do genuinely believe that treatments will come along, but it may very well be 50 years uh, before the treatment becomes routinely available. So people like me will probably have died of Parkinson's disease before the new treatments become available, which is a frustrating thing to think. <laughs> but thank you very much for opening that door for everyone worldwide anyway and opening a door on what you did in the 1990s, Ian. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much, Ian Wilmot. We're going to move back to the Battle of the Bests now and... Over to Luke. So I think one of the big changes we've had as a result of the, the crisis we've faced with antibiotic resistance is starting to think differently about how we treat bacterial infections. And so there's two ways that that happens. So one is with transfusions, where we give good bugs to fight the bad bugs, right? And, and trying to harness the good bugs in our microbiome as a way to stop infections, but also many other um, disorders, metabolic disorders can be affected by the microbiome. And so this approach of using good bugs is one of our, our major advances. Who and how did we figure this out was a good idea in the first place? It sounds as if a, a three-year-old could have come up with it. You know, you, if you have a problem with your, your gut, let's take poo from a healthy person and, and give it to you. Maybe it'll make you better. And the reality is that a lot of our treatments at the moment, they are kind of crude to some extent um, because it is as simple as that. It was really only when we started to discover the complexity of the communities of, of microbes that live in our guts that we started to think that this was even an option. But at the moment, most of the treatments just take poo from a healthy person and grow the bacteria up from them and then use basically a nasal 
duodenal tube, so a tube up through the nose and down into the small intestine to infuse the full community of bacteria in. But now there's a lot more refinement, so we're starting to figure out, well, which individual microbes are actually having these effects. Clostridium difficile infection, C. diff, a lot of you will have heard of. It's a very important hospital-acquired infection. Kills a lot of people who go in for treatment with cancer because their microbiome gets depleted by antibiotics and then they get infected. We now know the bug in good poo that helps protect against that. It's another closely related species, Clostridium sindens, that modifies our bile acids into secondary bile acids and those kill C. diff. So it kind of works like a beaver dam Clostridium sindens lives very high up in our digestive system and converts our bile acids, and then lower down, that suppresses C. diff. And very briefly, is there anything else we can do to protect our gut bugs other than transfusions? Yeah, we can can try to eat a healthy, varied diet. One of the best things we can do to maintain our microbiome is, is varying our diet. Um, You know, if we eat the same things all the time, the same bugs are going to grow more and more and it'll be less diverse than otherwise. Yeah, and that's one of the biggest things we can do. There's more and more probiotics that are useful, but you need to do your research on them. A lot of them are kind of pseudoscientific and there's not much evidence behind. So, but there are some good probiotics out there as well. And I think it's probably the ultimate case of don't try this at home. Yes, yes. Do not try, do not try fecal transplantation yourself at home. There's been people who've ended up with infections as a result. There are people who try to do this. I do not recommend it. There's banks of healthy feces available uh, to, to be used for this. Brilliant. Thank you, Luke. Well, from a best to another bizarre, Sophie... What have you got in your museum you'd like to volunteer that's particularly bizarre? Yes, so I'd like to volunteer the Petoscope. Has anyone heard of a Petoscope before? One or two people nodding knowingly. People nodding. Yeah, um, a Petoscope is also known as an X-ray fluoroscope. So they were found in shoe shops across the US, the UK, South Africa. If you're of a certain age, they were in shops from around the late 1920s to 1970s. And they offered people in shoe shops trying on your shoes a live X-ray view of your toes inside your shoes to see if they fit properly. Could you see the bones and stuff in your foot? Yes. What would happen is it's about four feet tall. It's uh, clad in wood and you would step up onto a little ledge and put your feet in. And you would then look down a gaze hole at the top and the operator would look down another one on the side and your mum or dad or whoever was with you would look down one on the other side. And you'd all look down and they'd press a big button and you get a live x-ray of your toes in your shoes. Apparently you could also see the stitching around your shoes and you're meant to wiggle your toes to see if there was enough room. Is this not sort of a, a, the cynic in me saying this is some kind of dodgy sales ploy because they'll sell more shoes because you'll come back three weeks later for an extra pair of shoes for the two new legs you've grown because of the x-ray exposure? <laughs> yes, I think um, my favourite one is, I'm actually going to get the year. So it was 1957 before the UK actually said that you shouldn't do this more than 12 times a year. <laughs> That's a lot of pairs of shoes, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, so obviously some people who are very into their shoes, but I think the greater concern was of the people that were operating these machines in shoe shops day in and day out. Because they were getting a reasonable dose of x-rays then, weren't they? When did we finally get these things removed from shops? So they were never actually banned in the UK. So they were banned in the US in 1953. But as I said, it wasn't until 1957 that the UK actually put out a warning about them. And then they were found in shoe shops up through the 1970s. I think I even remember... 
because I'm of a sufficient vintage to have had probably my early pairs of shoes. I think I remember this. So you've got one in your museum. Does it work? Have you had a go with it? <laughs> I think this is another good example of don't try this at home. <laughs> we did ask you to bring it in, but you said it's rather large because it, it's, it's a huge, great thing, isn't it? You said it's four feet, but you weren't referring to feet on your legs. It's, it's a tall thing. No, it's quite a tall machine. It was made in St Albans down in England. Um, they're quite pretty, actually, to look at. So it's on the top floor of our museum if you want to go have a nosy. But it's clad in wood. It looks very, very nice. Um, and obviously made a shoe shop experience quite an important, exciting one, for even more so for small children. In the news now, we've seen a lot of things about drones, like Gatwick drone being the infamous case that's come to mind. Now, you've brought one with you, Chris. What's so special about your little drone? Right now, the area that I work in, there's a huge question of this kind of technological battle, you know, defenders trying to protect against attackers, not knowing all the things that they're going to do and not really having a playbook. What I brought you here is a GPS, something called ADS-B transmitter. Aircraft like ML360, you know, the Malaysian aircraft that disappeared? You can detect them using two different technologies. Primary radar, which is the kind of thing that you'd be familiar with from the Second World War. So you, you ping out a beam of energy and you receive a signal back. Okay, You only get an idea of the location of the object. You don't necessarily know its identity. So that's called primary radar. Secondary radar, what you do is you, you query the object and then the, the object itself can provide back to you information about itself. So it sounds like a radio signal. And that's called a, a transponder, typically on an aircraft. The benefit of that is that if we use primary radar, we have to have radar everywhere. Whereas what we can do with boxes like this is receive a GPS signal and then broadcast our position to somewhere on the ground and we don't need all these, all these base stations, these radar stations. The good use of this technology is that we can attach this to a drone. And what it will do is tell you where it is. That's good, OK? The other thing that we could do, of course, is if the drone can detect its location through its GPS signal, then if it goes near an airport, the manufacturer of the drone can prevent the drone from going inside the airport circumference. So that's good as well, right? What this box does is, because uh, everybody else is much more optimistic and, and dealing with good, bright areas of science, and I deal with the dark underbelly of engineering, this is a GPS jammer. So what it would enable me to do is to take out the GPS system of an area of the UK or also emit signals that make it look like an aircraft. So your little drone could become a Boeing 737. Absolutely right. And this is a tiny little white box that fits in your hand. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's no bigger than a fairly chunky phone. This one's never been powered up before I get arrested okay <laughs> getting permission to test this in the UK is a really interesting example when when you say what are you going to do, do with it what we're trying to do with it is to work out stay one step ahead of the attackers and at the same time be aware of what's possible other than pranks what what could that be used for what dangers could that bring Right now, with a, with a drone, we could use geofencing, for example, to protect our airports and other uh, other critical areas. But if this was used in a in a destructive way, it could have a massive impact by undermining confidence in air traffic control systems. There are other techniques that in the UK we can employ to get around that, uh, and I'd rather not mention that on the radio. <laughs> Probably a good idea. <laughs> I think there is a key point here, which is that people, in order to be able to protect ourselves, just like I mentioned the National Cyber Security Centre, you need to understand how the offensive technologies change. And if you aren't interested in where the next potential attack can come from, then you shouldn't be surprised if you can't defend yourself against it. Wise words. Thank you very much, Chris. Now, back to a best of. And 
Beth, what's your astronomy best of? So I'm going to go with detecting and characterizing exoplanets. So again, exoplanets are planets orbiting stars other than our sun. Um, and I want to talk a little bit about how we know what they're like. So as we see, saw earlier, uh, for planets in our own solar system, our initial attempts at characterizing them went kind of disastrously wrong. There are no canals on Mars, as we know. Most of the planets we've detected around other stars to date, we've done so indirectly because of their slight tug on their star or because they pass in front of the star and dim it just a little bit. If we want to understand what planets are actually like, uh, we need light from the planets themselves, right? If we have light from the planet itself, uh, we can get a sense for how warm it is, how cold it is. We can get a sense of what it's made out of at least what its atmosphere is made out of. So one technique to do this, the one that I work on in particular, and hence the one that's nearest and dearest to my heart, is direct imaging of exoplanets, which is when we just try to take a picture of an exoplanet next to a star. Obviously, this is really challenging, right? Because stars are really bright and planets are not so bright. So it's kind of like trying to take a picture of a firefly next to a lighthouse. If the lighthouse and the firefly were in Dublin... And we're here in Edinburgh. That's quite some way. So is there a way of potentially masking the sun or the star so that yeah. that light can't bleach out the firefly so you can still turn really sensitive equipment on your firefly and, and therefore see it? Exactly. That's what you need to do to get the contrast necessary to actually image your firefly next to your lighthouse. So first of all, you have to do something about the atmosphere, one solution to this is to put your telescope in space. Once you've done that, well, the next obvious step is let's block out the light from the star, right? The instrument to do this, it's something called a chronograph. How does it work? The same way as if you see the sun is bright in the sky and you block, put your hand in front of it and you block it out. So you can put something in the, in the field of view of the telescope, which yes. just covers the star that doesn't cover the tiny speck of light that you hope is there, that's the planet you exactly. want to see. Exactly. So we've used this already to detect a number of planets. Uh, these are planets very unlike our own. They're what I like to refer to as baby Jupiters. So they're like Jupiter, but much younger. They're maybe 10 to 100 million years old. And yes, I realize that's only young in the world of astronomy. But because they're young, they're a lot warmer than they are at later ages and hence brighter. So that's what we've done so far. The hope is eventually to push these technologies down to lower mass planets and cooler planets, eventually imaging planets like our own. Can we also not, by looking at the light coming through the would-be atmosphere of the planet, learn something about what's in that atmosphere? Because you can assume that if the light's got to go through the atmosphere and there are chemicals in there that might soak up some of the light and different chemicals soak up different colours of light, if you look at different colours you could tell what's in that atmosphere and therefore you could spot and you can learn quite a bit about the weather and the climate and what, what the sort of environment of that particular planet may be without actually ever having to go there. Yeah, exactly. So this is the power of spectroscopy, right? Looking for the fingerprints of different atoms and in particular when we're talking about cool planetary atmospheres, molecules in your atmosphere. So for instance, there's already been detections of water and methane in exoplanet atmospheres by looking at their spectra from the light of the star passing through the atmosphere. So that's one technique that's used also by actually getting your directly imaged spectra of the planet itself. Thanks, Beth. Now over to you, Luke, and you've discovered a bizarre use for microbes. Uh, yeah, so talked a lot about the good things our microbes can do for us, uh, the good bugs in our microbiome. But uh, one negative is if you commit a crime, it's likely they're going to get you caught soon. And so 
what we're finding is that actually microbial forensics is one of the most exciting areas for use of microbes. So there's a few different ways that they might get you caught. So the first thing that, and probably the most advanced area in microbial forensics, is in trying to time when someone died in, for example, a murder case. So historically, we'd look directly at a body and say, oh, well, you know, there's signs of rigor mortis, so it's at least, uh, the person's at least been dead for this long. Or if a body has been outside for a really long period of time, via what insects are consuming it, you can tell how long it's been dead. Well, there's a similar thing that happens with your microbes. So once you die, your microbes start eating you. They, you know, there's no immune system to block them anymore. Lots of the microbes that are in our gut are kind of, they're, they'll happily sit there once our immune system is keeping on, them under control. But as soon as that's not the case, they'll begin to eat you and consume nutrients. And so what we see is there's kind of a clock of microbes that runs as a body is decomposing, both from the bugs within you and from bugs that will come from outside. And so that can give us a really tight time frame on how long it is since a murder occurred, for example. But the other thing that microbes can tell us is who's been in contact with whom or, for example, where someone has been. So if two individuals shake hands, if you sequence the bacteria from the hand of one of those people, you can tell who they shook hands with. The communities that are on us are like our fingerprints. So just like DNA fingerprinting has been used in terms of measuring our DNA and using that to tell who's committed crime, uh, we can use DNA fingerprinting of our microbes in just the same way. And we can open up a whole new crime scene investigation TV show. Exactly. exactly. CS Microbe. So there, it has, this has been entering some of the CSI kind of shows at the moment. For the, the science isn't, isn't nailed down hard enough yet for it to really be rolled out at that scale. But it's something that's on the horizon quite soon. And I think the final takeaway is don't do crime. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Luke. Now, sitting under your chair, Sophie, is a mystery guest uh, that no one's been introduced to yet. Tell us what you now have sitting on your lap. This is a lovely phrenology head. It's a cream ceramic skull that seems to be split into different types of areas. And this was a pseudoscience that was pioneered, if you can use that word, by Franz Joseph Gall, who believed that the brain was split into different faculties and that it was like a muscle. And the areas that um, you had bigger bits of your personality, like for instance, I'm looking at here, the hope for your future or your sublimity or your cautiousness, or I quite like there's the ones in the back about amorousness, um, could be seen from the lumps and bumps of your head. So he believed that your brain actually formed the different peaks and troughs of your skull and you could tell bits about your personality. It is, of course, a pseudoscience, but one that was believed pretty widely from 1810 to 1840, and Edinburgh was the European home of phrenology. (laughs) So basically, looking at this head you've got here, there's a a map drawn on the surface with words corresponding to... So if I fondled your head and I felt a bump in that particular area, I'd say, oh, that's your dignity centre. So you must be... Well, you must be very enriched for dignity. I see at the back here, this is obviously the love centre because we've got conjugal values, we've got marriage there at the back. Because that that bit at the back there is actually where your external occipital protuberance is, the bulge on the back of the head. And didn't they say that if you've got a big one of those, you've got a big something else? Wasn't that the claim? (laughs) People in the audience are fondling their own heads. So that was indeed the claim. And uh, for instance, there was actually a group of phrenologists in Dumfries who dug up Robert Burns's bones to get a crest of his skull. 
to see whether or not his poetic center was particularly large. But uh, they actually found that his love of children and his ability to make children was especially a large portion of his skull, which, if you know his story, of course, is true. <laughs> there was something about pickpockets, though. Wasn't it around the side here? So above the ear, there's, there's something here. Yes, yeah, so we've got a bit of an audience participation. If you have a little feel just above your ears, you might feel a little bump. You can feel whoever you're with if you ask them nicely. Um, <laughs> apparently, this actually came about because Franz Joseph Gall went and surveyed all of the pickpockets, just pickpockets, um, to see what area of their skull made them more prone to pickpocketing. And apparently it is that little bump just above your ear, and the bigger it is, the more likely you are to steal. When did this fall out of favour? When, when did people discover that this is just bunkum, the shape of your brain, whilst it is divided into different bits of the brain doing different jobs, has no bearing, really, on the shape of your skull? So around the 1840s, because quite embarrassingly, um, the Phrenological Museum is actually here in Edinburgh. It was right across the street from Chambers Street. And you can see above all the windows, there's casts of the skulls of the great men of phrenology. Now, the problem was that when these men passed away and casts were taken of their own skulls, the kind of traits that they were actually showing weren't what they maybe would have wished them to be. A lot of them actually showed up to be they'd be murderers or pickpockets, but were the great men of phrenology. <laughs> so it suddenly fell from favour and was withdrawn <laughs> quietly and disappeared. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> so um, I think it was actually quite a lot of drama and debate in Edinburgh society about phrenology and a lot of... <laughs> great, very Victorian arguments through correspondence, but it did indeed fall out of favour, thankfully. Well, thank you very much for coming to show it to us today, Sophie. I will very quickly, because people were kind enough to do questions, but I'm going to give each of our panellists one minute to answer these questions. So, Brody, brilliant question, this one. This is for you, Luke. When and if the ice in the Arctic melts, is there a chance of there being pathogenic, in other words, harmful microbes and deadly diseases locked up in the ice? That's an excellent question. I'm just part of a bid, hopefully the EU will fund, to see if that's the case. So we're looking at the melt from the Arctic. There is a risk. We know when we've looked in Arctic cores before, we've seen antimicrobial resistance deep down in those cores because it's ancient bacteria evolved to resist the antibiotics of others. But yet there is a chance that that might be the case, so we need to worry about it. Thank you very much for that. Alison Bramley says, how will we find life on other planets and how will we know, Beth? All right. Uh, the how will we know part is really tricky. So first step, find and characterize a planet like our Earth. We have a few that are sort of like, but we don't know because we've not seen their atmospheres. That is going to take space missions in the 2030s and beyond to image these objects and to get spectra. Once we have spectra of the objects, we can look for the fingerprints of different molecules, different things going on. And then we start looking for biomarkers. Now, this is tricky because you, know, you might think, oh, oxygen, right? Life produces oxygen. 20 seconds to go. Let's look for oxygen. There's other abiotic ways to do that. So you have to look for the right combination to really show that you may have life. And it would be best if you had a lot of plants to do this with, because if you find this on just one planet, eh, who knows, you really need an ensemble to say. Thank you, Beth. Jamie says, what problems can we anticipate for cybersecurity of self-driving cars, Chris? Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> <laughs> one minute. Okay, yes. Yeah, so, so Department for Transport, UK government, uh, part of the UK government's issued some principles on how to secure connected and autonomous vehicles. 
people that are developing the vehicles are very aware of the possibilities. Equally, people are experimenting with more and more interesting offensive techniques. And those two things, as I said in the previous answers, go together. So the protection goes alongside an understanding of the threat. The kind of things people can do are to attack the inner computer networks that control the vehicle or they can attack the sensors. I've seen some military projects that are looking at systemic vulnerabilities in the artificial intelligence that's used by the vehicles to identify the kind of objects in the road. Very, very quickly, funniest example of an autonomous vehicle. Uh, Right now, I went across the States, looked at a demonstrator. One case study they're working on is what happens when a member of the police walks out into the middle of the road to stop the autonomous vehicle. The autonomous vehicle says it's a pedestrian, manoeuvres around and escapes. (laughs) Brilliant. Thank you, Chris. And that's all we've got time for. Please show your appreciation to the guests who contributed this week. Chris Johnson from the University of Glasgow. We have Beth Biller from the Edinburgh University's Institute of Astronomy. Luke McNally, who's also from Edinburgh University's School of Biological Sciences. And of course, Sophie Goggins from the National Museums of Scotland. Thank you very much. And please also don't forget Ian Wilmot, who talked to us earlier about cloning Dolly the Sheep. I'm Chris Smith. He's Adam Murphy. You've been listening to The Naked Scientist. Thank you very much indeed. That's all we've got time for. The show was produced by me, Izzy Clark. Do join us at the same time next week where we're chatting through all things fluffy and how veterinary medicine has helped us humans. And if you're a fan of the show, why not leave us a review wherever you get your podcast? We really love hearing your thoughts and feedback. The Naked Scientist comes to you from Cambridge University and is supported by the EPSRC and Rolls-Royce. I'm Izzy Clark and thank you for listening. Goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.